This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Coming to terms with Red Hill. For years, the risky business of maintaining the military's massive and aging underground fuel tanks as they sit precariously over our drinking water aquifer have been, well, a gamble. It's been 24 hours since the Pentagon announced it will permanently shut down the facility. Many across the state are still trying to process the magnitude of what just happened. We talked to Hawaii U.S. Senator Brian Schatz just after hearing the word come down from the Department of Defense yesterday afternoon. Well, we've been working on this for about two months now, and we were hoping we would land here, but you never know until it's final. So make no mistake, this decision is final. We've won. There's a lot of work to do in front of us in terms of implementation, and we're going to have to provide funding and, of course, uh, make sure that the Department of Defense is true to its word. But the decision has been made. Red Hill is getting shut down, and there will no longer be fuel endangering our freshwater systems on Oahu. The next step in terms of defueling has to be done very carefully because the last two bill events were due to leaky pipes. And so you don't want to move 104 million gallons worth of fuel through the same leaky pipe system that caused the pollution event. So we're going to have to do this carefully. Uh, We may have to, we're very likely to have to invest in additional infrastructure in those pipes just to be able to transfer the remaining fuel safely, but it's going to get done. The rest is details. The decision has been made. We've been pushing for this uh, for uh, several months now. I've been spending a lot of my time and political capital almost all day, every day on this. And so really good news on a Monday. You know, I was uh, wondering what uh, Senator Dan Inouye would think just to see this past year evolve the way it has. You know, everybody who came before us understood the history of Red Hill and the rationale behind Red Hill. But times have changed. Um, That infrastructure is old, and it's no longer a question of whether or not it could be operated safely. It could not be operated safely. And once the Department of Defense came to terms with the fact that it was not cheaper, it was not better for their service members, it was not better for Oahu residents, it was not better for the environment, was not better for national security to keep this thing in operation. They finally came to the conclusion that, frankly, everybody in Hawaii uh, already uh, had arrived at probably six months ago. There are still lots of questions about how we deal with the military's readiness and ability to tap into stores of fuel. So we have to cite new locations. Uh, I mean, that's going to be another extended process. Well, providing fuel for the fleet still has to be done. But, you know, one of the things that I thought was best about the way this decision got made is it got generated from your local commanders, in particular uh, Admirals Paparo and uh, Ocalino, Ocalino running uh, the Indo-PACOM region. And he went to the Secretary of Defense with a new concept of operations. In other words, how could we distribute fuel throughout the theater in such a way that solves the Red Hill problem but also improves the sort of operational capability of of the uh, military in the Indo-PACOM region. And so we didn't have to sort of make a trade between national readiness and environmental protection. Um, This is the decision that the Department of Defense landed on that's actually good for both. And it comes at a time, you know, when global tensions, you know, have ratcheted to an unprecedented level and, and, it's a scary time, and we wonder about our readiness, you know, here in this region of the of the Pacific. You know, you don't want to take anything away from national security, but at the same time, we have to protect our natural resources. This was pretty straightforward. There was no way that they could run uh, this facility any longer, and that's what I kept telling the White House and the Office of the Secretary of Defense and Pentagon officials and appropriators that um, this thing was over, and um, they just needed to come to terms with that, and they finally did. Um, But, you know, understandably, those who are worried about providing fuel for the fleet needed to understand where all of this fuel was going to be distributed throughout the region. And um, although that hasn't been finalized um, and to a certain extent may end up being classified, uh, I am confident that they wouldn't have arrived at this decision were they not confident that it were good for national security? And is there anything, I guess, that, uh, I don't know, you, you know, 
there are many groups that are, are reading into, you know, what the mil- the statement that the military has released, what was said and what wasn't said. But, you know, anything that you were struck by as you read the statement and, and heard the, the briefing this morning? Well, if you look at the difference between the way the Department of Defense had been talking about this um, up till now and the and the statement that was made by John Kirby, the Pentagon spokesperson, I see a market break in tone. They tried to be as explicit and unequivocal as possible today. They, they said permanently shut down. They said defuel. They tried to use words that were declarative and not giving themselves enough room to hedge. They don't want to operate Red Hill anymore. They have made that decision and they are moving on. I think it is always wise to be vigilant and it is understandable that trust has been so frayed and in some cases destroyed between the community and the Department of Defense that, you know, uh, it's totally understandable that some people will parse the statement and try to figure out if there's wiggle room in there. There is not wiggle room in there. Um, All that is left is for um, us to execute on that decision. That is going to require engineering. It's going to require funding. And so there's plenty of work in front of us, but the decision is over. And I know the EPA has its uh, investigation that it just uh, launched. I think it was last week. The inspector general, you know, has its report. You know, we're waiting on the release, uh, you know, from that. Do you think that folks might be still held accountable for what's transpired and how we got to this situation? Yeah, I think the first thing was to shut down Red Hill and defuel it. And the second thing is to uh, make sure there's accountability because there was wrongdoing in in this process. It was not uh, unavoidable that these pollution events happened. And so I'm hopeful that the inspector general's report will be made public with the appropriate redactions for whatever may be a national security uh, concern, as well as whatever the EPA is going to do in terms of their inquiry regarding whether or not federal law had been violated. And so th- those aspects of accountability have to be pursued. This is that that part is not over. And I think especially in in the military, you know, you you, you need to understand who in the chain of command made a mistake and um and and proceed appropriately. Anything you want to say to I don't know, the Board of Water Supply and to the Sierra Club, the folks that were sending out the warnings early on? Well, I'm 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 reminded of what President Johnson said to Martin Luther King in the Oval Office around civil rights. He said, I, I know what I have to do. Now go out there and make me do it. And I think that's what the Sierra Club, I think that's what Ernie Lau, I think that's what all of the water protectors did, is they went out there and they made uh, public leaders appointed and elected uh, do the right thing. And so this is a victory for everybody who cares about clean water on Oahu. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Senator, for your time and your work uh, on this issue. Thanks, Catherine. That was Senator Brian Schatz's reaction to the news that the military is now prepared to permanently shutter the Red Hill underground fuel tanks after a leak contaminated the military's drinking water system with fuel. This morning, we did get a chance to talk to John Kirby, the press secretary for Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, who made the decision to shut down Red Hill. HBR has learned that Austin had planned a trip to Hawaii, but the tensions in Europe took priority. Here's Kirby talking about what happens going forward. For the secretary, Secretary Austin, this was very much about making sure that we're doing the right thing, not just for our national security, but for the people of Hawaii, for the environment. And he's very comfortable that uh, that this decision, the decision to defuel and to close Red Hill, uh, is the right thing to do on every single one of those fronts. And I understand that uh, the defense secretary had planned a trip out here to Red Hill, but because of uh, the situation in Ukraine, you folks uh, didn't make it. 
we travel all the time and, and uh, have, have an opportunity uh, to get to, to come through Hawaii uh, on a routine basis. And we expect fully that we'll get a trip on his schedule to get out there uh, in the future. But, uh, but right now, yeah, we're, we're focused uh, very keenly on what's going on in Europe. But I'm, com- I'm comfortable that, that we'll get back out on the road and we'll, get, and we'll get out there so he can see it for himself. I would note that the deputy secretary did go out there in December and, uh, and had a chance to see at her level for herself uh, what the situation was. And she, of course, gave the secretary a full and complete debrief when she got back. Yes, and the secretary of the Navy was out here twice. That's right. As far as the decision that was made and announced yesterday, was there anything in particular that pushed it down this path? I mean, is it the tensions over there in Europe, uh, rethinking our strategy in the Indo-Pacific area? Yeah, lots of a lot, a lot of factors that went into this decision. And, and, and look, I mean, of course it was informed by what happened in November and what we've been going through for the last several months, what the people of Hawaii and Oahu have been going through for the last several months, certainly informed uh, the secretary's thinking, but it was also heavily informed by a cross-functional team that the secretary put in place here at the Pentagon, which included Indo-PACOM, the joint staff, the, 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 the services, uh, to take a look at uh, what should be the right posture for our fueling capability in the Pacific. And they came back and recommended to the secretary that because of the dynamic nature of the threat in the Indo-Pacific, because of the pacing challenge that China represents, because of our need to be able to get fuel uh, to the fleet and to the forces faster and in a more resilient way, uh, it was the smart thing to do uh, to distribute that fuel farther forward in the Indo-Pacific region rather than rely on the reserves at, uh, at Red Hill. So it, it was absolutely informed by what we've been seeing happening, but also clearly informed by this analytic work to look at the best way to fuel the force going forward uh, in a vast, vast region that is now much more challenged by powers like uh, by like by China and North Korea uh, than it was even just a few years ago. We just did a deep dive on the history of Red Hill, and at the time of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, there were workers on that project. You know, the Japanese didn't know that it existed. And uh, I just, you know, can't help in this day and age to think that, you know, now all our eggs are in one basket. We've got 20 eggs, 20 large, massive tanks there. And I just wonder about, you know, the blast zone and, and, you know, if if something catastrophic were to happen with all that fuel there. So I don't know what, if that played in the ultimate decision to shut the place down. What played into the decision was absolutely... uh the need to uh, diversify and distribute our ability to fuel the force and to not have not to have so much reliance on a single facility in a single place that clearly is is, is pretty well known now right so yeah I, I think the the idea of being flexible and nimble in the way we fuel the force uh, given the the dynamic nature of the threats in the Indo-Pacific uh, clearly played into the secretary's thinking. Uh, and his view is we have to be more distributed, more uh, more diverse in, in how we look for opportunities to, to fuel. And so what we're going to do is look for additional contractual opportunities in in places in the in the Pacific region where we already have fuel stored up to see if we can increase that storage capacity. We're also going to look at putting more fuel at sea. Uh, right now we have about 10 tankers that are dedicated to this mission in the Pacific. We're looking at maybe building some more and adding some more of that at, at sea capability so that, again, the great thing about ships are they can move around, uh, they've got flexibility, they've got mobility, so we're going to look at doing that as well. And what about any contracts that may have been let? Uh, I believe there might have been a, a contract with the French company to, you know, reline the tanks. You know, given this decision, what happens to those types of contracts? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we're going to we'll work our way through all that now that the decision is made to defuel. Because of the secretary's decision, um, we obviously the, the focus of our efforts right now uh, are going to be on a getting the assessment back from the independent team to determine what needs to be done to safely operate Red, Red Hill and operate it with the intent to defuel, not operate it with the intent to stay, keep it in, in function. But, you know, it's been out of operation now for uh, since December. 
so we want to make sure before we start turning on valves that we know what we're doing and we can do it safely. So that assessment team is going to come back and let us know that by the end of April. Uh, then we'll start to defuel it uh, and then begin the process of closing it down. And we think uh, all told that can be done within uh, 12 months once we once we start the defueling process. As for the other contracts, again, I, I'd leave that to the 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 uh, the, the uh, contracting agencies, but I, I can assure you that the decision has been made. Uh, the work that we will be doing going forward is to defuel and to close down that facility. What can you say to the people of Hawaii and to the military families living in those neighborhoods that had to deal with the contaminated water? You know, what do you say about restoring the trust and about repairing relationships going forward? We know that... Uh, some of that trust has eroded. We're aware of it. We respect it. We understand it. And you may have seen this in the Secretary's statement. We know we had to rebuild that trust. We know we have a lot of work to do in that regard. We're grateful for the citizens of Hawaii uh, who have hosted us for so many years and provide such a wonderful community for our people to live in. And we're grateful for our families our military personnel and our civilian personnel and their families who who also give so much to the country. In fact, so many of them are also uh, residents and citizens uh, of the state of uh, Hawaii. And we know that, that they too have, have lost a measure of trust and that we have to work in, to earn that back again. That includes making sure that, that uh, we're looking after, for our personnel, we're looking after their health care, uh, making sure that the that we're as transparent as we possibly can be with every single step going forward, and we're going to do that. Um, but the secretary is very aware uh, that there's a trust deficit, and he is going to be working personally, uh, and he'll stay engaged on this um, to to uh, to do whatever we can to, uh, to to regain that that trust. The other thing that I would say um, is that that we know we have to be good stewards of the environment. It, it, we have a huge responsibility at the Department of Defense to. De- to protect this country, to defend it. Uh, part of protecting the country is also protecting the environment that we enjoy and that uh, that we rely on. Uh, and we know that there's a lot of work to do in that regard in basically two ways. One, of course, is the ongoing recovery and mitigation efforts that the Navy is leading because of the leak in November. And we aren't out of that yet. There's more work to do there, clearly. And the Navy's leading that. But number two is what's going to be the environmental impact of closing down the facility and making sure that it can be shut down in a safe and environmentally sound way. Uh, and again, this assessment team is going to help us get, get the, some of those answers. But as we move forward over the next year or so to, to close it down, we're going to do it in lockstep with the Hawaii Department of Health, with the EPA, uh, and other agencies that are involved in, uh, in proper environmental stewardship to make sure that, uh, that we're doing this, again, in an environmentally conscious and, and uh, appropriate manner. And you know, many people are applauding the decision, but uh, you know there are uh, other groups, Board of Water Supply, Sierra Club, who are a little concerned uh, because they have yet to see the military drop the legal, the legal opposition to the emergency order. Yeah, I can't, I can't speak to that uh, that specific issue. That's really something that the, the Justice Department is, is is better poised to to speak to that uh, that that particular legal process. But again, I want to stress to your listeners, and I want to make it clear. The decision has been made. The secretary has decided that Red Hill will be defueled and will be shut down permanently. And that is the that is the track we're on. Uh, that's the effort that uh, that we're moving towards. Uh, and uh, again, without speaking to individual uh, legal cases, which I'm not in- entitled to do, I-, I can assure you that nothing has changed about uh, our our determination to see that decision through. That was John Kirby, Press Secretary for the Defense Department, clarifying the decision by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin to permanently shut down Red Hill. When asked about accountability for the fuel-contaminated tap water, Kirby says he did not want to get ahead of the multiple investigations that are underway. Same with what happens to any future use of the Red Hill facility. The department says it's just not there yet.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Care, a Hawaii health plan specializing in Medicaid health insurance, committed to the health of Hawaii's communities. AlohaCare.org. On the next Fresh Air, novelist Amy Bloom talks about how, at her husband's insistence, she helped him legally terminate his life after he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. He didn't fit the qualifications in American states with right to die laws, but he did at a nonprofit in Zurich, Switzerland. Her book is called In Love, a memoir of love and loss. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect Oahu's water resources, offering tips to conserve water, such as taking shorter showers and fixing leaks. Updates on Red Hill at protectoahuwater.org. We continue with coverage on the Pentagon's decision to shut down Red Hill on today's reality check. We're joined this morning by Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra. Good morning. Hi, Catherine. Good to be here. Yeah, busy day yesterday. Lots of news conferences. Yes, it's a really big moment. Um, The Pentagon announced that it's going to permanently decommission Red Hill. what so many people locally have been hoping for and demanding for, especially in the last few months, but really for years. Um, and so it's, it's really a milestone moment. There's still a lot of unanswered questions and uncertainty and distrust, but, um, you know, a lot of people were reprising the decision yesterday. Yeah, and I just was reflecting the day that we both took a tour of that facility two years ago. Uh, and, yeah. you know, you've been tracking the the contested case hearing, uh, you know, lots of questions about what happens to that, what happens to the legal challenges uh, on the governor's order. Right. There's there's so many tentacles to this. Um, so the, the Pentagon's announcement yesterday is sort of separate of these other legal processes of, that have been happening in the background. Um, the Navy still has a, an open permit application with the Hawaii Department of Health to operate Red Hill. This is something they filed an application for back in 2019, and the Sierra Club and um, Honolulu Board of Water Supply have been challenging it since then. Um, so that's still ongoing. Um, they haven't withdrawn their permit application, which is interesting. Um, and just yesterday, the Navy submitted a motion saying, um, you know, let's pause these proceedings until we figure out next steps. Um, and what that means is that they wouldn't have to provide information anymore and documents that the health department has requested. And the Sierra Club is now crying foul about that, saying, hey, you're, you still have to hand over these documents. You know, if you want to stop proceeding with the permit, you know, withdraw your application. So we'll see how that goes with the Department mm-hmm. of Health. Meanwhile, there's you know, new city legislation, legislation um, playing out at the state level that's being considered. Um, there's just a lot going on with this, um, a lot to track, and we're staying on top of it as best we can. Yeah, and uh, many lawmakers, you know, like you said, are, are not ready to just let their guard down. They don't trust uh, right. the military, uh, you know, because they they made out for so long that, you know, they had this they had this cupboard that they could protect the water and, and we weren't in any, you know, mm-hmm. we weren't at risk of it getting right. in the water. For, for so many years, it was really Sierra Club and Honolulu Board of Water Supply and a small but passionate group of community members that were um, raising alarms about Red Hill. But the military consistently said, no, no, we can do it. We got it all under control. This is safe. It's not leaking. Um, and that that spiel really started to fall apart last year. Um, And so there's a lot of distrust, not just in in the local community that's been tracking this for years, but now with the military family members that have been, they've been drinking fuel last year. Um, So people are, you know, I think cautiously optimistic. They welcome this news, but there's also questions about, okay, well, 
how quickly is the fuel going to be removed? The Navy says it'll take 12 months, but when does that clock start? Because there has to be all these assessments before then. And what's the plan for environmental remediation? And how can we ever trust the water in that community to really be safe? Um, People have questions about the testing. They're only testing 10% of the homes. Um, You know, some people have been moved back into their houses, but they're not using the water. They're still going to use bottled water and and shower elsewhere. Um, there, you know, I spoke to one army major um, and mother who lives on Fort Island. She said they're traumatized from this, and understandably so. Well, there are skeptics. I know you did talk to the attorney for Sierra Club, uh, Kimo uh, Frankel, David Frankel, uh, and he's kind of scratching his head because all of a sudden now the military says, oh, well, we need to decentralize that fuel asset. Right. You know, for years, the Navy has, and the military in general, has really clung to Red Hill saying this is a vital national security asset. That was always the talking point they used. And they said, we need it. You know, we can't do without it. Um, it, you know, it sounded like it was very important to them. And all of a sudden yesterday during the, the Pentagon's announcement, they're saying, well, actually, it's really advantageous for us to spread our resources around and not have it all in one place. And this is actually like a good strategy for us. And so the uh, Sierra Club's attorney, David Kimo Frankel, is saying he's just puzzled by that. He's like, you know, this is a complete reversal of what they've been saying for years. And so he, he said it's hard to give anything DOD says any credibility. That was his word. Yeah, well, we'll see what happens on the legal front if they make good uh, and if they turn over all the, the, the paperwork that the DOH and the Sierra Club want. But thanks so much, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. You can read her stories online at civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. You know, we have a story about a new mural racing Honolulu's Chinatown later in the show. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we're focusing on a mural of a local tattoo legend, Norman Keith Collins, a.k.a. Sailor Jerry, who you may know from his signature spiced navy rum. Norman Collins was born in 1911. He left home as a teenager for a life filled with train hopping, hitchhiking, and adventuring. Sailor Jerry eventually made his way to Chicago, where he learned how to operate a tattoo machine from prominent tattoo master Gib Tats Thomas. Collins then joined the Navy, where he fostered a love for ships and sailing. Later, he settled down in Honolulu, where he opened a tattoo shop and became widely known for tattooing soldiers and sailors on leave. Though Sailor Jerry earned his legacy inking tattoos, in his spare time he also captained a three, uh, 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 captained a three-masted schooner, he hosted his own political talk radio show called Old Ironsides on KRTG. He taught himself to be an electrician and played in a jazz band. Since Collins made such a huge impact on tattooing in Hawaii and elsewhere, it makes sense that a mural was painted on a building in Honolulu in order to honor his legacy. For today's quiz, we'd like you to tell us on what street the Sailor Jerry mural is located. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Dancing girls from afar Drinking rum from a jar At Sailor Jerry's KTRG Radio Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to strengthening family relationships, such as parents and children together. NareedHawaii.com. 
know, today is International Women's Day, and we are celebrating a woman who made significant contributions to Hawaii, obstetrician Dr. Kong Tai Hong. She's credited as the first Chinese woman to practice Western medicine in the islands after sailing from Canton, China to Honolulu with her husband, Dr. Lee Kai Fai, in 1896. Dr. Kong was also a certified midwife and counseled expectant mothers for over 50 years. In 1946, she was featured in Ripley's Believe It or Not for having delivered more babies than any other private practitioner in the U.S., over 6,000. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with Dr. Kong's great-granddaughter, Louise Ng, to learn more about her great-grandmother's lasting legacy. My grandmother on my mother's side, Mary Lee Sia, is one of Dr. Kong's daughters, and I think she's one of the older kids. So she helped take care. And maybe that's how Dr. Kong managed, too. I think her older children helped take care of the younger ones. Okay. She had nine children, but eight living. That's right. There was at least one baby that didn't survive, mm. maybe two. She had a big family herself. It's pretty amazing to think that here she was going to work and having kids to raise at the same time and probably being one of the very few women doctors who were delivering babies at the time. Maybe that's why she was in such demand. Is there a story about great-grandmother that you find very riveting? Hmm. Well, you know, I am most intrigued by the way that she and my great-grandfather met. And of course, that's a story handed down. But they were both medical students at Canton Medical School. And the way my great-grandmother got there was she was apparently a basket baby. She was left at the steps of the orphanage that was run by Lutheran sisters that I just recently learned were missionaries that came from Berlin, Germany of all places. And so as she grew up and was schooled there, she took the exams and passed the exams at age 13 or 14, was able to qualify to go to Canton Medical School. And then the other neat thing that I learned just recently is that she was assigned a big sister at Canton Medical School. And I can't imagine there were very many big sister medical students there. But it was the big sister's son who ended up being the man that she married. Hmm. Your great-grandfather. My great-grandfather, yes. Wow. And how was it that they'd come to Hawaii? Well, I'm learning this secondhand, and actually one of my source materials is a book that one of my grand-aunts wrote. Her name is Gladys Lee or Leeling Ai, and she wrote a book called Life is for a Long Time. And I remember reading it decades ago, and now I want to reread it again because it, I think I'm going to see it with new eyes and just really interested to learn how the early immigrants lived in Hawaii. But she talks about the fact that my great-grandfather was from a very long line of you know, scholars, and so he was expected to marry and arrange marriage to the proper family. But he had met my great-grandmother and decided that she was the one he wanted to marry. And then he worried about, well, how could we have a life in China when society has so many expectations? And so with the consultation of his mother, he decided that after getting married that the young couple would go almost immediately to Hawaii and work for an uncle of his who already had a business there. So then I learned that they um, they went over to Hawaii as laborers because that was the only way you could immigrate as a Chinese person, even though they were trained medical doctors. And so it was another story, too, that eventually led them to get their licenses. Hmm. And that, that story is another story that I think our listeners really need to know about. Yeah, I thought that was a wonderful story, too, because it showed that, you know, you can get the help of many people from many walks of life and races and stations to help you along the way. And so I think it was my great-grandmother who screwed up the courage to go visit the missionary family of Frank Damon, who was the ancestor of the late Frank Damon, who was a founding law partner in a law firm here. And she went and asked for help in getting her husband and herself licensed as doctors. And I suspect she probably spoke at that time little or no English, but the Damons had been missionaries in China, so were very sympathetic and knowledgeable about the Chinese people. And so he helped them both get an interview with then-President Sanford Dole. And through his offices, they were able to get a meeting before the Board of Examiners, 
that handed out medical licenses and were given the choice of either doing a long written exam or doing a rather taxing oral exam, being examined by a board, you know, and having three minutes to answer or something. With the help of the translator, they opted to do the orals and they passed. And that really just speaks to her ability. So she had been already trained back in Canton. She had gone through medical school. So she had the knowledge. She wasn't going to let language be a barrier. So even though she came to Hawaii under the status of laborer, she really had a different skill set that she knew she could really bring. Yes, indeed. And so it sounded like initially my great-grandfather did work as a laborer to sort of pay off his debt to his uncle. So it took some time, but ultimately, through persistence, they did get their licenses. Hmm. In some of the readings I did, it would say that she would still go to work with one baby under the arm. (laughs) And she was remembered for personally going door to door to treat patients. And she delivered more than 6,000 babies of all races across Oahu. That's just an amazing thing. It is amazing. And the really neat thing I found out when I met my husband shortly after I met is that one of those babies she delivered was my future mother-in-law. And my future mother-in-law had many siblings, so it could very well be that all or most of those siblings were delivered by her, too. That's a great family story and totally underscores the reach that your great-grandmother had in the community you know, and in researching this story, discovering that your family has the tie into the Palolo Chinese home, because back in 1896, your great grandparents opened Yin Hospital in Palama, had no idea it existed, but the first Chinese hospital in Hawaii. And they also acquired 15 acres in Palolo Valley that we know today as the Palolo Chinese home. That was a new one for me, too. I read it in the Star Advertiser, so that was a wonderful piece to learn about the connection with Palolo Chinese Home. Louise, these are just wonderful layers to delve through. For us, we can look forward to an upcoming exhibit, and there are plans in the works to build arches in Chinatown, and your grandma's going to be honored in that. So as a descendant, as somebody who, you know, whose legacy really this groundbreaking trailblazer who crossed oceans and made it to Hawaii. What is it like for you to realize that this is the legacy that you have? Well, it makes me proud and also gives meaning to what I always say, which is that we do stand on the shoulders of the prior generations, even as we might rebel or the younger generations might rebel. We really have to thank those who came before. And of course, those of us who are here in Hawaii have to thank our ancestors who made the big decision to leave their life and come to a new land and make a life here. And, you know, as families, I think we often don't appreciate our family histories. And it's a good reminder that we need to talk to our older relatives and get their stories before it's too late. And I'm still wanting to learn and ask questions and also pass on that information. But it makes me feel like, okay, you know, I have roots, maybe That's where some of our determination came from, but also it gives inspiration for just carrying on good family values. And in your generation for you, you chose to go into law. Yes. So I became a lawyer. And in the face of, you know, I think we had a history of doctors in the families, not a whole lot of immediate relatives, only an uncle who were lawyers. And so it was kind of, for me, a different path to take. My dad was a business person and really believed that that was the way to go. So it it was taking a different path. But actually, I was interested then in reading my grand-aunt's book and learning that the family name Lee means law. Well, hey, maybe back there in the genes, there was a drive to um, gain knowledge and pursue justice. So, (laughs) Mm, Right. Also in the family tree, though, that grand-aunt, she was a filmmaker? She was an entertainer? Yeah, she was you know, She was quite a colorful character. Very dramatic lady, you know. I remember her, even in her older ages, always wearing silk flowers in her hair. And actually, we have to give my grand-aunt Ling Ai credit for the whole story about, you know, my grand, great-grandmother delivering 6,000 babies because Ling Ai, when she moved to New York and lived the life of a bohemian, I can imagine, became friends with 
Mr. Ripley of Ripley's Believe It or Not. And so she was the one who kind of tipped him off to that story. And apparently it actually got printed in, you know, the Ripley's Believe It or Not that we I used to see on the cartoon pages. Mm-hmm. She had his ear. So definitely the fact that, hey, my mom was an amazing woman. And for her sister, your grandmother, Mary Licia, who was a renowned cookbook author. In her foreword, she also credits her mom, Dr. Kong. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, my grandmother was one of the older children. And she, you know, I think actually many of the children were very driven, accomplished individuals. I mean, there was another older sibling, Betty Lee, who did become a doctor and did work in China and apparently did a long march with the Chinese that went and hid in caves and practiced her medicine to help people there, had a young son, I think, that was with her at the time. But my grandmother then, although born in Hawaii, married someone from China and went back to China and started teaching Chinese lessons there. And so Mm -hmm. when they moved back to Hawaii after the Japanese occupied China, she started teaching Chinese cooking at the YWCA. Even today, you know, there's people who have been touched by her lessons who will say, I have the book or my mother took class and, you know, that's my little Chinese cooking book Bible. <laughs> Just amazing. So these are the threads. On this day, International Women's Day, what would you like to say in closing? Well, I think it's very fitting, and I thank you for featuring my great-grandmother because I think that storytelling and learning our history of our families as well as our communities and country is very important and highlighting the role of women, which oftentimes gets overlooked, It's just important for just sort of inspiring the rest of us and maybe giving us some perspective on our family history and why it's important to do the things that we're doing. So thank you for all the women in our lives who have really inspired us and helped us to be where we are. What an impressive family. That was uh, attorney Louise Ng reflecting on her family's trailblazing matriarch, Dr. Kong Tai Hong, who was the first Chinese woman to practice Western medicine in the islands. Dr. Kong also helped establish the First Chinese Church of Christ and served as president of the Honolulu Chinese Orphanage Society. She passed away in 1951 at the age of 76. Several of her grandchildren and great-grandchildren are practicing doctors. Support for HPR comes from Tony Lim CPA in downtown Honolulu, specializing in trust and estate taxation, fiduciary accounting, and fiduciary administration services. Learn more at tlimcpa.com. HPR is hiring. Are you looking for a full-time position in a lively, highly interactive, and collaborative environment? Does being part of a mission-focused work group and fiercely independent local nonprofit sound like a match for your passions and skills? We have position openings in our membership and finance groups. Job descriptions are on the Employment Opportunities page at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Manoa Valley Theater, presenting the comedy The 39 Steps, a mix-up of Alfred Hitchcock's movie, a spy novel, and a dash of Monty Python. Opens March 17th. Tickets at manoavalleytheater.com. We are lingering in Chinatown for our final segment. It's another feel-good story because I think we could all use more of these. You know, Settlement Enos is the artist who led the students from the Center for Tomorrow's Leaders in a weekend effort painting a mural on the historic Wolfat Building at the corner of North Hotel and Mauna Kea Streets. The mission to revitalize Chinatown, to stamp out graffiti and crime, Enter a dragon traveling through time, and on his tail, high schoolers, public and private, helping to make a little corner of their world a bit brighter and a lot more colorful. A bit of weed and seed if you get the drift. Here's Enos. We came up with a design that's based on the Chinese dragon and the history of Chinatown 
there's a fire motif, there's a flower motif, and then there's a boat motif. And they're all talking about different parts of the, uh, Chinatown's history. And there's a Chinese symbol for fire, the Chinese symbol for flower, and the Chinese symbol for water are incorporated into the scales. And the most important thing was that the students came together to create something beautiful. And as the artist, all I really did was kind of did all the outside lines, like a big coloring books, and the students filled it all in. Wonderful mixture of public and private, just celebrating community. Yeah, coming together at a time when we can't celebrate community enough. And with what's happening in the world, all the war and strife that's going on, we can take care of our home. We can take care of where we're at. That's what we can do about it. Yeah, we can't, so we can't, we can't go to other places, but we can take care of this place. I, I think for me, the, the best ceremony will be another one like this sometime again in the future. In another part of town that needs an example of what community looks like. What community looks like. And that was local artist Solomon Enos putting the final touches on the Chinatown Dragon on the historic Wolfat Building. We talked to several of the students on hand. Many feel connected to Chinatown. And, you know, you, you could see by the looks on their faces that they couldn't help but walk away with a sense of pride watching their mural take shape. We hear first from Iolani Sr., Alana Cooney. My mom is Chinese and I, my dad is American. And I grew up in a lot of different cities like Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Taipei. And I really thought that, like, the Chinese culture is so beautiful. And I wish that it can be represented properly even on the mainland U.S. And sometimes, like, you know, when you think of Chinatown in Honolulu, you think of it as it's kind of, like, run down and it's not taken care of well. So just making the area more beautiful is really important to me. And here's McKinley High's Desiree Augustine. Yeah, I do come here often. I actually grew up, like, around this neighborhood. I went to Central Middle School, like, just above the street. I'm also going to McKinley, and my bu- I ride the bus through here quite often. You were here this morning with all the graffiti on the windows and the plywood, and it looks spectacular now with the, the, with the dragons on there. Yes, um, we've gotten, like, a whole lot of public support. There have been a lot of positive comments and people who cheered us on. This is the first project like this. I don't know, do you think you'll come back if, if uh, they decide to paint somewhere else? <laughs> um, I think that would be a like, really great possibility, and I think it would be a great opportunity to come back. And here is Taylor Ogata, a junior at Punahou. Well, I mean, honestly, it's just been incredible. I think just people observing and stopping by at the bus station has been really awesome. They're interested in what we're doing and how we're beautifying the area and I feel like the community is more rich than people would assume and so um, we've just been exposed to that all morning and it's it's wonderful. Okay and then do you have any connection to Chinatown? Do you come down here a lot? Or? So when I was um, younger my grandma and grandpa used to take my brother and I down here to visit the mom and pop shops and um, eat food and just explore the area but I feel like over time I just as I got older, I didn't come here as often, but I feel like this project just really immersed me back into this environment, and I'm really happy with what we've done. And Hawaii businessman Eddie Flores of the group A Better Chinatown couldn't believe his eyes when he saw what the students created. You know, I came down this morning at 9 o'clock when I saw the painting, almost, or the mural almost cry, because uh, when you look at Chinatown, they have so many broken windows and uh, just, uh, you know, bought it up by plywood boards. And here the kids uh, uh, try to take advantage of that and, and paint it, the plywood boards. Now instead of uh, ugly-looking uh, storefront, you got beautiful mirrors. In fact, I would encourage them to do more in the future. And I, I told them I'll pay for it. I'll fund them uh, whatever they need, uh, you know, to do it. So uh, I'm so glad they are doing it. And this is great for the community. Uh, that's in line with what the mayor wanted, you know, make the Chinatown nice. In fact, Chinatown is much nicer than before now. I'm telling you, because I come here two, three times uh, a week, and uh, the old days, you have a lot more homeless, and I've seen less, and the security is much better, and uh, the activities is, is just great. Weekends, just come Chinatown on a weekend, Saturday, Sunday, it's great. It's bustling, it, it's fun, good food, uh, good people. And so there you go, a bright, colorful spot in a blighted area of Chinatown. Flores' group has a plan to erect arches in Chinatown to set it off as a gateway to the historic downtown district. (music) 
In today's Backyard Quiz, we looked at the legacy of tattoo artist Norman Keith Collins, a.k.a. Sailor Jerry. Born in 1911, Norman Collins left home as a teenager for a life filled with travel and adventure. He acquired his skills as a tattoo artist in Chicago, and after learning the basics, he joined the Navy, where he fostered a love for ships and sailing. After his time in the Navy, Sir, uh, Sailor Jerry settled down in Honolulu. He opened a tattoo shop. In addition to cementing his legacy inking tattoos, Sailor Jerry also found time to captain a three-masted schooner, host a political talk show called Old Ironsides on KRTG. He taught himself how to be an electrician, and he played in a jazz band. Since Collins made such a huge impact on tattoo culture worldwide, it is only fitting that a mural was painted on a building in Honolulu to honor his legacy. For today's quiz, we hoped you could tell us where the Sailor Jerry mural is located. And the answer is Smith Street in Honolulu's Chinatown District. And congrats to my buddy Sid Milburn from Pearl City. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Down at Smith Street, 1033, that's where they said he'd be. Get a mark for eternity at Sailor Jerry's. From sunrise until sundown, sailors come from miles. That wraps it up for us now, but tomorrow we talk National Consumer Protection Week. Are you protected? What do you think about this decision to permanently shut down Red Hill? We'd love your feedback. Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. <laughs>